Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Ecom. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle, Houston, you're go for landing. Over. I do understand. Go for landing. 100 feet, three and a half down, nine forward. 5%. 185. 75 feet. That's looking good. Down a half. Six forward. 60 seconds. Lights on, down two and a half, forward, forward, 40 feet down, two and a half, picking up some dust, 30 feet, two and a half down, straight shadow, four forward, four forward, drifting to the right a little, down a half, 30 seconds, forward, just contact light, Okay, engine stop. APA at a descent. Boat control, both auto, descent engine command override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You're looking good here. Okay, we're going to be busy for a minute. In 1962, President John F. Kennedy announced to the world that the U.S. would put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And after eight years of trials and tribulations, NASA had made it to the finish line. However, crossing that finish line would prove to be a monumental and historic challenge. On today's episode, I welcome back to the show author, podcast host, and space nerd, Mr. Rick Houston, for part two of our three-part series. We talk about the Apollo 11 story and cover in detail the somewhat unknown but critical significance of the Apollo 12 mission. We also talk astronaut humor, what it's like to be talking on the radio when 900 million people are listening in, and how landing on the moon with only 18 seconds of fuel remaining is just like taking a walk in the park. I'm your host, Susan, and this is the Ready Room Podcast. game on ladies and gentlemen welcome back to the ready room podcast this is part two with mr rick houston so part one last episode go back and check that out we covered leading up to the apollo 11 12 and 13 missions which we're going to talk about today but the first episode covered a lot of cool stuff kind of the history of nasa the apollo one kind of the struggles nasa went through initially as a program and where it got them to today so we're going to talk about specifically today apollo's 11 12 and 13 the significance of each, and how if they didn't happen in that order, things could have gone south. Like the history of NASA could be very different than how it ended up being, especially you know Apollo 11. And again, I don't want to get into too much of that right now, but I want to back up real quick to a little story from, is this Apollo 10, Charlie Brown? Yes. Okay. Well, first off, Rick, veteran journalist, NASCAR historian, host of the Scene Vault podcast, super cool 
background. Thank you for coming back on. We appreciate it. It's great to be here. Man, I've been looking forward to this. Any anytime I get to talk about the space program and history, uh, I'm all about it. Well, so, after the yeah. first after reading this book a second time, having to go through it and the first conversation, the feedback we've been getting is nothing but positive. I don't want to say I'm a NASA nerd, but I'm kind of this is this stuff is I found myself getting super excited learning about all the stuff that went on behind the scenes and that it was happening. You know, this is, this is 1970. You know, 60 years ago, and the average age which we're going to get to of the guys running the show and mission control collectively, they're in their 20s. I mean, me and my boys in our 20s, no way you want to put us in charge of a space program. Like, that's a bad idea. <laughs> so I thought it was super cool. So this little story that I found just really interesting, Charlie Brown. Talk about Charlie Brown for a minute. The Apollo 10 command module was nicknamed Charlie Brown. And the uh, lunar module was uh, Snoopy. And so uh, Gene Cernan, the, one of the, uh, the command, the lunar module pilot on that flight, he had a little bit of a sense of humor. So he figured out that they would call uh, their command and service modules and their lunar modules by cartoon names. But th- that became a thing, and there were all kinds of Snoopy cartoons. Charles Schultz was obviously a big fan of the space program. Uh, there were several Snoopy-related comics in the, in the daily comic strips. So, yeah, I mean, it was just a fun thing to do at that time. So Snoopy, now did they have an actual figurine with them, right? In the Or no, it was in, they had one in Mission Control, right? Right. Okay, so, but the it was just the nickname for the... Uh, for the lunar module and the command c- and service, the module. command service module. All right. So now, they did have drawings. They did have paintings on board the spacecraft, but I don't believe that they had the actual figure. Okay, so, but there was an image of Charlie Brown and Snoopy on the spacecraft. Yes. Sir. All right. So this is this little paragraph in the book I thought was super cool. So this is re-entry for Apollo Ten, right? So Charlie Brown re-entered the Earth's atmosphere, traveling at an astounding thirty-six thousand. 314 feet per second at approximately 24,760 miles per hour. It was the fastest any human beings had ever traveled before or since. The command module splashed down just a mile and a half from its target point and just 3.3 miles from its recovery ship, the USS Princeton. That's pretty fast. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've flown fast aircraft, but... I read this and I'm like, wow. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not even close, man. Yeah, uh, 24,000 miles an hour surely beats a Sopwith camel that uh, Snoopy flew. <laughs> uh, yes, definitely. And, you know, people ask me, like, how fast is a Hornet going? I'm like, I've, I've gone Mach 1.8 in a Hornet, which is fast. But 24,760 miles an hour, we're not even in the same league. <laughs> so, yeah. all right, well, before we get into just kind of the ending of dress rehearsals, which is the chapter before we start talking about Apollo 11, there's a little bit of a conclusion that I think kind of ties it in. So to the book, looking back, it is hard to comprehend just how far the agency had come in such a relatively short amount of time. There had been plenty of highs and plenty of lows. President Kennedy's speech before Congress saying that he believed the nation should commit itself to the goal of landing a man on the moon before the end of the decade. Being one up so many times by the Soviet Union, Mercury's baby steps, the built bridge by the Gemini program, the devastation and doubts cast by the Apollo 1 fire, a gutsy gamble to send Apollo 8 to lunar orbit, the dress rehearsals of Apollo 9 and 10, 
All of it had led to this this point. It was go time. And with that, we get into, this is chapter seven, a bunch of guys about to turn blue. This is the story of the Apollo 11 program. So Rick, when you, when you were putting this together, when you had to do the research, now you had mentioned in the first episode, Apollo 11 story has been covered quite a bit. Uh, of all of them, do you think it's probably the most publicized? Well, obviously, that was a big, big story in the late 1960s. It was essentially what NASA was all about in the 1960s. And for a worldwide audience to be watching their every move, they didn't do it behind the Iron Curtain. They did it in full view of the entire world. And it was it was actually, there's never been a truer case of put up or shut up. This was everything that they had trained for. This was everything that the engineering was about. All did come down to the flight of Apollo 11. Now, if you ask Ed Findell, who was in charge of Apollo Communications, he was certain, he was positive that Apollo 11 was not going to land. He said, he, said at, he said 50-50 would have been uh, overly positive. Overly ambitious. He would. He thought that at best they would land on their third or fourth try. And far be it from me to disagree with Ed Vendell, and I hope he doesn't hear this because <laughs> I, I will definitely hear about it. But if they had failed three or four times, there would never have been a landing. So, and that's not a unreasonable assessment. No, you know, landing something on the moon. Mm-hmm. It's never been tried. How often do you hit a home run on your first, you know, first pitch, first swing? That because that's essentially what we're doing. Absolutely. So his doubts aren't unreasonable. Oh, they. I would put Ed's opinion up against basically anybody's in the space program, and so I believe that he was very realistic in his in his viewpoint, with the exception of taking three or four tries and then failing. I. I honestly believe that if they had failed the first time, maybe the second time, but I don't know that there would have been th- been a third try, especially if those attempts had been fatal. Got it. Uh, Casualties, it, things yeah, like that. If, if we had left astronauts on the moon, they had somehow, for whatever reason, not gotten back, I, I believe that would have been the end of the program. So that is a, that's a fair assessment. Mm-hmm. Especially what's at stake, mm-hmm. the, and, and especially considering what we what the nation was going through in Vietnam. Every day, the bad the news was bad. Uh, you had you had casualties streaming out of uh, Vietnam. You had the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy in 1968. So, 1968 and early 1969 was not a good time in America, and. Certainly, the public was not in the mood for a, just another public failure. Got it. Yeah. And it was, it was publicized live, the entire thing. Oh, absolutely. So the world is watching. Mm-hmm. Got it. Well, that's cool. They kind of... But no pressure. No, no pressure. <laughs> no big deal. But it, it talks about the stakes, you know, uh-huh. and like you said, with the, the political climate and what's going on around the world, like you'd said, the, the world and especially America was looking for... They needed some type of good news, mm-hmm. something good. So for the intro, after the first four Apollo crewed missions, there was nothing left to accomplish other than the grand prize itself. 
Everybody worked as if they knew this was a noble thing to do, remarked Glenn Lunny, on tap to serve as flight director for Eagle's lunar liftoff. And Eagle was the... Lunar module. The lunar module. Okay. It was something where people came because they wanted to participate. When it came time to land, we'd been working on this for so long, say a decade. The truth is that mankind had been waiting for this for thousands of years. Imagine all those people sitting around their fires, coming out of their caves. The moon had to be a big mystery to them. This great big ball right up there. And not much long prior, the Wright brothers had managed the first powered flight just 35 years prior to Glenn Lunny's birth. Orville was still living when young Mr. Lunny made his debut into the world. Lunny knew of outhouses, ice boxes, and wicker lamps in his youth, and his family did not even own a car until after World War II. So this, I wanted to give a little, little intro into Glenn Lunny real quick, because um, he plays a major role in this. And uh, just back to the book for a brief minute. Only six decades after Kitty Hawk, Lunny had helped to land human beings on the moon. The Apollo program in general, and Apollo 11 in particular, Lunny concluded, represented the pivot point from the horse-drawn past to the supersonic future. So this event, this goal of getting men on the moon, I would agree with that statement significantly. Like, if that doesn't happen, you know, how does how do historical events change? But the fact that it does happen, we'll get into that. It does connect kind of the ancient, the old school past. He says, horse-drawn past to the supersonic future, like connecting decades of old to technologies of new. I thought that was a really cool way to just kind of connect that. Well, when you think about it, there were millions upon millions of people alive at that time of Apollo 11 who were born before powered flight was even a concept or had ever been accomplished. And so in that one lifetime, I would, I would postulate that that is the biggest advancement in human history that quickly, because we went from a few hundred feet at Kitty Hawk of flight to 66 years later, landing on the surface of the moon that to me seems inconceivable absolutely inconceivable but it also shows and i mentioned it the last time that we met it it also shows what a nation can do when it is of one mind now certainly the nation was not of one mind but in that one particular goal of getting astronauts to the surface of the moon and returning them safely to the earth most everybody was on board with that. That, that to me, is just incredible. And when you put in that timeline perspective, mm-hmm. 66 years, yeah. that's not that. No. You know, there were people alive that were like, I remember when Orville flew. Mm-hmm. And then they see dudes landing on the moon. That would be gnarly to have conversations yeah. with those guys. Yeah. That's, a, that's a change yeah. significantly. So you had mentioned Ed Fendel, and he... Uh, his odds, his his betting guess about, hey, we're going to land on the moon on the first try was reasonable. Was he normally like that? Was he kind of the voice of reason at times? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I, I don't want to say the voice of reason. He was just very no-nonsense. He didn't sugarcoat stuff. Uh, he talked about in, in uh, the last time that we talked, uh, I believe we talked about 
the uh, beer parties that they would have after a mission. And they were very direct, very blunt, and they said what needed to be said. And in Ed Vendell's world, there wasn't a lot of time for sugarcoating. Like no bullshit, straight to the point. Absolutely. So in Ed Vendell's world, that was the case. We were not going to land. And and he he was he didn't put any any fluff on it. He said we were not going to land on the moon the first try. So to that point, now he was an Inco. What was that again? Uh, he was in charge of Apollo communications. So basically, anything from the air to the ground and the ground to the air uh, that that got that those transmissions back and forth, he was in charge of. Okay, so I like I wanted to highlight that because he, he you talk specifically in the book about his. His thoughts on if we can make it or not, or if we're going to make it. And I thought that was kind of cool. So to Ed Fendel, the uproar kicked up by the flight was a moot point. A 50-50 shot at landing might have been the opinion of most his coworkers, but it was not Fendel's. There was no way, none whatsoever, that Apollo 11 was going to make it down to the surface. Hell no, Fendel began. How many things have to go right to make this happen? You start with this incredible rocket that has to stage, and the next thing has to burn. Then it has to stage the S-1V burn. Then you've got to get into the right orbit. Then you've got to burn the S-1VB again to get you down toward the moon. Fendel was not finished. The command service module, which was named Columbia, would have to perform all but flawlessly. And so would the lunar module named Eagle. The procedures would have to be spot on. Something, somewhere, he was sure would go wrong and prevent Armstrong and Aldrin from sticking the landing. You're telling me you think you're going to make it the first time? Fendel concluded, not if I'm in Vegas. Not with my money, you ain't. I ain't turning you loose with my American Express card. Fendel was not even sure if Apollo 12 would be able to make a landing or Apollo 13. If NASA was lucky, really, really, really lucky, a landing might finally be accomplished on the fourth try, maybe. You're not going to Vegas. <laughs> not on his American Express card. And that right there is why I love Ed Fendale. He tells it like it is, and to heck with the consequences. That's just right. Ed. Feelings are not important here. No. <laughs> Feelings do not matter. No. They're not in the, uh, the consideration matrix. So for time purposes and also I'm not going to do it justice if we throw go through all the specifics of the Apollo launch transit to orbit but I'd like to get into we're going to fast forward quite a bit so this is where it gets to the so far NASA has sent astronauts to and they've orbited the moon multiple times so on multiple missions but this is the first there's this is their first attempt where they're going to land the crew. So let's talk about kind of who a little bit. So who was on Apollo 11? Neil Armstrong was the commander, and Buzz Aldrin was the lunar module pilot. Mike Collins was the command module pilot. So that meant that Neil and Buzz would be landing on the moon while Mike stayed behind in the command and service module in lunar orbit. And, and I've always thought it was very interesting that they were not the closest of crews. They were very professional, but they were not buddy-buddy. They didn't go out drinking and partying like a, some of the other crews did, especially Apollo 12. That was, that was a fun crew. 
But on Apollo 11, they were all business all the time. And at the end of the day, they went their separate ways. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So the, yeah. the command service module stays in lunar orbit. Yes. So it's still orbiting the moon. And the lunar module is just the landing craft yes. that goes to the moon. And that has two people on it. Right. So Collins is rolling solo in the command service module in outer space, mm-hmm. going around the moon, mm-hmm. while Buzz and Neil, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong are, are hanging out on the moon. Right. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. I thought they were all in there yeah. together, and he was just kind of manning the lunar no, module. No, sir. He was, he was their ticket home. I mean, because you couldn't leave that spacecraft in orbit uncrewed. I mean, you, you just couldn't. I mean, you can't have a pilotless craft. But he he was honestly and truly their ticket home, and that's why typically early on in the program, the command and service module pilot was a was the senior astronaut to the lunar module pilot. The lunar module pilot was typically early on a rookie. Whoa! So in this crew, Aldrin's the rookie. Well, no, in that crew, I would say that 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 they were all veterans. They had all previously flown in space. Uh, I, I think that was on purpose that they were on that flight, such an important, important flight. But in the case of Apollo 12, 13, 14 and 15, they were all the lunar module pilots. The, the second person to walk on the moon were all rookies. Wow. Because honestly, they were on the. They were. They were along for the ride. They might have been called the lunar module pilot, but they did no piloting of the lunar module, with okay. the exception of Alan Bean on Apollo Twelve, who got to take over the the controls because of his friendship with Pete Conrad. Okay, so that is a gnarly piece of info. Going back to, uh, I'm just thinking crazy scenarios. Uh-huh. If the lunar module, which has Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, if it has some sort of malfunction going to land on the moon or trying to depart the moon and something goes south where they can't make it back to the command service module where Collins is hanging out, does Collins, in a, as a solo dude arcing around in outer space, does he have everything he needs to get home? Oh, yeah. yeah. So he can still go home. Yeah. But he goes home without him. Holy and cow. Now, imagine what that... Would have been lost. Shoot. And he, I'm sure, trained for that. I mean, that's got to be a contingency. Oh, yeah. You have yeah. to roll through that scenario. Every scenario, basically, that they could possibly conceive of, they trained for. They simulated. I had no idea that. I mean, yeah. if they're like, hey, Collins can't make it up, buddy, yeah. you're going to have to go home solo. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I don't want to get too far out on a limb here, but they also did, you know, training uh, – where they would link up in, in orbits that, you know, weren't optimum. They would essentially train for the command and service module going after a crippled lunar module. But there was only so much that they could do. Right. Uh, it wasn't like the command and service module could go down and land on the moon and pick up Neil and Buzz and then blast off. That was not an option. So, I mean, when you when you really and truly think about this, that's how marvelous this program was that they pulled everything off the way that they did. And like like you admit, like uh, Ed Fendel had mentioned, the amount of stuff that had to go perfectly mm-hmm. in the right order yeah. is significant. Well, and When you think about an Apollo 
Saturn V launch vehicle having millions and millions and millions of parts, many of which were constructed by different contractors, they all had to fit together. They all had to work perfectly. And one little thing could go wrong and derail the mission. And so Ed Findell's assertion that the first landing was not going to happen, that's not out of the realm of possibility. That's a very real possibility. That is, uh, man. And this is their first try. Mm-hmm. First try. <laughs> like This is crazy. The first try to lunar land. First try to land on the moon. Okay. So into the actual, we're fast forwarding quite a bit and read the book. It's amazing. Go flight and you'll get the details. It's phenomenal. But right now we're at the point where they're transitioning to the landing phase. Mm-hmm. So they're established in lunar orbit. Mm-hmm. So they're under the Earth's gravity stabilized in a way and the next part is we're going to neil armstrong and buzz aldrin are going to fly the lunar module from the command service module to the moon so a little bit of to the behind the scenes in mission control because this is the point in nasa that has never happened even all the veterans there everybody that's been there for so long all the experience in the room Everyone is a new guy right now when it comes to this point in the mission. And I wanted to talk uh, just prior to it happens. It was a cool little leadership highlight, I thought, uh, by Gene Kranz. Now, he is the flight director at the time. Now, there's, there's multiple flight directors that rotate through the mission itself. But at this point, he's the flight director. Uh, real quick, Steve Bales and Carlton. Who is Carlton again? Bob Carlton. Bob Carlton. What was his role? What was Bales' role? Bales was in charge of basically the computer programs that were going to be taking place or that were having to do with the landing. And Bob Carlton was in charge of looking over the the uh, lunar module as it descended. Okay, got it. And, and and I just want to go ahead and tell this story about Bob Carlton. That morning, the morning of the, the landing, uh, he came into work and was met by a contractor from uh, Grumman that had constructed the lunar module and they had discovered a very real concern that the fuel tanks on the on the lunar module's descent engine or the descent stage would blow up that's the day of the the landing the day of the landing and and i'm not an engineer so i don't know exactly how to explain it but there was a concern that the fuel tank was like a balloon and as that balloon expanded with the heat of the uh, uh, fueling process, they were concerned that that balloon, the walls of that balloon would become thin as it expanded. And the thinner a balloon wall becomes, the more likely it is that that balloon is going to burst. So what do you do with that information? How, how do you process that? I mean, they had they had no real data. They didn't know a temperature at which it would burst. They didn't know at, at what time in the timeline that it would burst. But they had a very real concern that it might happen. And Bob Carlton took that information, and he did not tell Gene Kranz about it. He kept it to himself. He made a command decision in that moment that he would watch his data that much closer and hope for the best. All right. So yeah, you're talking. You're talking about clinch time. Holy cow! And I'm, you know, I tried to highlight not the entire book, obviously, but 
I'm reading. I'm looking over that part right now where he gets that news from Grumman, and he, when he gets the mission control, he is quote unquote almost paralyzed. Mm-hmm. He admitted. And then this is cool. I'm glad you brought this up. His plan was this. This is Carlton's plan based on the news he got from Grumman. He would keep an eye on the tank temperature gauges, and if they happen to spike, he would call the span room, which was the spacecraft analysis. Okay. It, it was a back room uh, that that was in charge of, of just the big picture. Okay, so he would call the span room who are running the big picture and have Grumman's representatives explain the need for an abort to the mission. In his mind, it was the only solution. That is some, uh, that's some pressure right there. Well, bring it into just before they start the landing phase. I di- I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So now the pressure's really up. So Carlton and Steve Bales are describing kind of the environment in the room before this, this event that no one's ever done before, ever, in history, is about to be attempted, and kind of the, the tensions, so to speak. Carlton and Bales are not the only ones in the control room who are clutched, as Carlton would have put it. Kranz knew that, and he also knew that he wanted to say something to reassure his troops. He called for everyone in mission control to go to the assistant flight director's private communications loop. So that's a very specific comm channel. No one else would ever hear what he was about to say, because it was not recorded, And then Kranz began. Okay, all flight controllers, listen up. Today is our day, and the hopes and the dreams of an entire world are with us. This is our time and our place, and we will remember this day on what we will do here always. In the next hour, we will do something that has never been done before. We will land an American on the moon. The risks are high. That is the nature of our work. We worked long hours and had some tough times, but we have mastered our work. Now, we're going to make this work pay off. You are a hell of a good team, one that I feel privileged to lead. Whatever happens, I will stand behind every call that you will make. Good luck, and God bless us today. And it sounds like the feedback, like it was a, it was a good time to throw a little, just a little encouraging nudge to the group because it sounds like people were a, a little nervous. Well, Steve Bell said that he would always remember that. And he was actually the one who quoted that speech from memory. Oh, no kidding. That's how much he remembered that. And also Jack Knight, who was in mission control, he got really emotional talking about that moment because they knew that they had the complete trust of their, of their flight director. And you mentioned a a moment ago where everybody was rookies on this flight, when it came to the lunar descent phase, they were in real time because they'd never tried this in, in in reality before, but they had trained for this many, 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 many times. Honestly, there were, there were more than a few who said that the actual landing was kind of anticlimactic because they got to the moon and in training, they had killed the astronauts hundreds, well, I don't want to say hundreds of times, but they had the, the astronauts had died or crashed or aborted many times. I'm glad you mentioned that, and that's clutch because the uh, there's a part in the book you talk about how the last attempt, the last training mission, the last simulation before the actual mission 
it was a failure. They didn't make it to the moon. And a bunch of people were pissed off right. because they yeah. thought, yeah. hey, we should have landed on the moon. We should have had the simulation work out so guys could have a good positive feeling before they go. Mm-hmm. And that's not reality. Right. And I disagree with that. You don't just, you know, just because Susan and Rick want to have a successful mission before the real one or simulation. Uh, no. Here's a curveball. React to it accordingly. So that's that makes sense. And I think Gene Kranz was pissed about it. Oh, he was. He was pissed. Like, we should have a landing before we really do this thing. And there's two different ways of looking at that. Number one, I can fully understand where Gene was coming from. He wanted to end that training cycle just days before the flight on a high note. But by the same token, I think that left the mission control team with a very real sense of what could go wrong. And they did not go into that flight. They did not go into that phase on, on with with rose colored glasses on. They knew what could happen. Yes, and that does that. I forgot about all the simulators, and they had mm-hmm. done that over and over, right. and thrown curveball after curveball after curveball. And then it comes to game time, which is what you want. You know, train if you train harder than you know the game itself or the the simulation, the flight, whatever it is. Like, you know, in the sim, like in the F-18, oh my gosh, we would throw grenades at each other. Just crazy scenarios mm-hmm. and see if a guy could make it. And sometimes it's, you know, eject, but maybe you can figure it out. And and then in the flight, if something, you get your emergency when you're really airborne, you're like, oh, this wasn't as bad as what Rick gave me in the sim. So Well, with the, with the obvious exceptions of Apollo 12 with the lightning strike and then the Apollo 13 debacle, with everything going wrong, by and large, the training 99 times out of 100 was far more difficult than the actual flight. Awesome. I like that. All right, so moving into the descent phase. So right now, they're at 50,000 feet above the moon's surface in orbit, and it's about time to kick this off. So this is phase one. They're at 50,000 feet. I got written down here. When Kranz finished with his remarks, he ordered the control room doors locked. It was time. The next few minutes would be some of the most tense and compelling in the lives of those who worked the flight in mission control and back rooms. The descent orbit initiation began on the far side of the moon with a 30-second burn that placed Eagle into an orbit that swung the lunar module to within 50,000 feet of the lunar surface on the near side. As soon as the spacecraft peeked out from behind the moon, controllers around the room raced to get readings to ensure that it was safe to continue with a powered descent initiation designed to bleed off the lunar module's orbital velocity. So they've kind of, they haven't had access to like the readings from the lunar module because it's on the far side of the moon. So as it comes back around, they're making sure everything's okay. Yes. Right. Okay, cool. All right. Nearly 16 minutes after coming back around to the lunar near side, the braking phase, the PDI, the Powered Descent Initiation Braking Phase, commenced. It began with a short 26-second burst of the descent engine to just 10% thrust, knowing as known as an oulage burn to force floating propellant into the engine's intake valve. Data just dropped out then, and as, as messages were relayed through Collins' In Colombia, to have Bud, oh, gosh, I'm screwing this up. Might have to edit this part up. But so, what's happening right now? 
Sorry, this is, I'm screwing this whole. There's so many acronyms. Hon- honestly, it, it, they were getting a little bit of ratty data, but that was nothing that was unexpected. And they got that back online, and they went ahead and they uh, went with the powered descent initiation. Uh, and, and one thing that they noticed uh, very immediately was that they were a little farther downrange than they were expecting at that point in the descent. And I, I think that there were a couple of different reasons, uh, theories for why that happened. I think one of the issues was when they undocked, uh, there was some air in the in the adapter between the two spacecraft that kind of acted as a pop or as a cork mm-hmm. that kind of that kind of uh, accelerated it out a little more than what they expected. But the real issues on the descent of Apollo Eleven were the uh, the program alarms. So this is that's yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because this is these are happening as they're descending. Mm-hmm. So program alarms, they're getting a deedle deedle like a light is popping up in right. the cockpit. They're getting a some type of oral warning, and Steve Bales is the one that at the time owns the call for an abort. Is that correct? Right. Okay. So he's these little alarms are popping off. And it's not just one. You know, can you talk about that a little bit? Because that was, this is pressure point right yeah. now. It's go or no go. And they had practice aborts and all these things. So what were the alarms they were getting? Essentially, and again, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a computer analyst or anything like that. But essentially, the programs were signaled that the computer was overloaded. And that they were having to, that it was having to drop tasks in order to continue. And that was uh, something that they had seen uh, on previous flights. And actually, Steve had called an abort uh, when he saw similar alarms to that in training. And the the simulation supervisor came back and said, no, you should have continued with with your descent. It it was simply giving you the information that the computer was overloaded, but still operable. Got it. All right. So this, again, is a prime case of teamwork. And Gene Kranz told Steve Bells to come up with a checklist of, of alarms that would mean an abort and what they meant. And Steve didn't want to do it. And so Steve farmed it out to his backroom guy, Jack Garman. And Jack came up with that checklist. And when, the, when that alarm took place, he simply looked down on his desk, and he had the, the checklist right there under glass at, at his uh, console in the uh, staff support room. Jack said, 1202, we're good. Keep going. And so Steve Bales got on the loop to Gene Kranz and said, we're good. Keep going. So that's happening. That happened multiple times. That ha- Yes, it happened. I, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. Happened at least three or four times. So this is this is cool. I'm glad you mentioned that because this <laughs> there's a little paragraph you wrote about it, and I just put I wrote next to the paragraph more alarms. <laughs> the, the final three alarms took place after Eagle had pitched up to a not quite vertical position in a process known as high gate, beginning at an altitude of, pro- of approximately seven thousand feet. And four and a half nautical miles from the landing site, Armstrong and Aldrin could finally peer through their small windows and visually monitor their approach to the lunar surface. The final approach started in less than two minutes. The spacecraft dropped dropped to just a few hundred feet above the surface. 
For maybe 2,000 feet on down, Kranz knew that the responsibility for the landing was rapidly shifting from the mission control to the two men doing the flying. It was, after all, their behinds that were on the line in what Kranz and fellow aviators had always called dead man's curve. Dead, man, dead man's curve? Question mark? Absolutely. Every inch lower was new, completely uncharted territory. So now the mission control is kind of like standing back and they're letting the pilots just fly. And there was a little part you talk about how, you know, sometimes too much information can be confusing. And at this point, mission control kind of quiets down, right? Yeah. And it's funny you say that because, you know, with the program alarms going on, you can imagine being Neil Armstrong piloting that that spacecraft to the lunar surface. He's wanting answers. He's wanting them now. And Steve Bales and Jack Garman and Gene Kranz are in the hot seat and, and trying to give the, him that information. But at, at, at some point, uh, the... Uh, the 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 further downrange that they got uh, the you know that that little blip where they were further downrange than what they expected, and then also the the computer program was basically bringing them down into the middle of a boulder field on the lunar surface, and so G, uh, and so Neil saw that he took manual control of the spacecraft and maneuvered past that that boulder field. Well, when he did that, he was using more fuel than expected. And so that was Bob Carlton's responsibility. And Bob Carlton, in the last minute, minute, minute and a half of that uh, landing phase, he was the only person in mission control allowed to speak other than Gene Kranz and Charlie Duke, who was the capsule communicator. Uh Charlie Duke had had you know told his boss Deke Slayton they were sitting together, and Deke told him, he said, "There's too much chatter, you know. You you need to get everybody to be quiet." And so Charlie Duke came on the on the flight director's loop and said, "Flight, we need to we, we need to watch this. We're giving we're saying too much. Yeah, too many people are talking. And so in in that last minute, minute and a half, or whatever it was." Bob Carlton was the only person allowed to speak in mission control, and he was watching over the fuel supply. And so you can hear him call 60 seconds and then 30 seconds, and then they're still not on the surface. And he actually had a stopwatch that he was, you know, that he had, he actually had tape on it to, you know, to signify where the, the time and the fuel was supposed to be at whatever point. And according to him, there was 18 minutes of 18 seconds of fuel left in the spacecraft when they touched down. That, when I read that, mm -hmm. I stopped to put the book down for a second. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah. Because fuel mm -hmm. is life for anything flying. Right. And we don't talk seconds, yeah. we talk hundreds of pounds in, right. in my world. So for them to have the fuel burned down to seconds, mm -hmm. And it was by far, from what I understand, it was by far the lowest amount of fuel that they ever landed with. And this was the real deal. This wasn't a simulation. This was butts on the line in the sea of tranquility and not in the simulator. You wrote specifically, by the count of the stopwatch Carlton was holding in his hand, 
Only 18 seconds of fuel remained before he would have been forced to call an abort. I mean, so they're at, they're at the finish line. They're at the one-yard line. I mean, inches to go to the end zone. And it's on him managing the fuel to potentially call an abort at that point. And he's just calm, cool, collected. Mm-hmm. Got a stopwatch. Yeah. We got 18 seconds to go. Plenty of gas. Yeah. Dude. And, and to be honest with you, there is a school of thought uh, in theory that would have said even if Mission Control had caught an abort at that point, that Neil Armstrong would have magically lost communication and went ahead and landed. Heck yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, right, man. Yeah, we're not so, aborting now, yeah, bro. Yeah. Um, but – yeah, say again, say again. Yeah, We're gonna Yeah. In all honesty, that was not Neil Armstrong. Uh he was very, very by the book. And he he was not the maverick of of the space of, of the astronaut corps. Now there were there were plenty of other guys who would have landed that, that spacecraft with no fuel left. I mean they the 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 e light would have been the e light the the empty light would have been on and the needle way past the low point yeah yeah so <laughs> yeah uh, but that was not Neil Armstrong so that's good though you know you uh, got to have that that's a good yeah. balance yeah. Uh, I know exactly what I would do I mean dude we're landed bro like, like we're, we're <laughs> we landed came all this way yeah well, there's no way we're going home man and we're we're ten foot off the lunar surface nope. yeah we're not going we're not going back to orbit you no. know we'll 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 do a little hybrid crash landing just like <laughs> just like landing on the boat no big yeah. deal yeah very cool. Yeah, so the fuel, that was, you know, with the combination of, I love the pressure that's going on, and these guys are all just taking it in stride. All the alarms that are happening, and then the fuel, and then backing up to, hey, you know, the notification from Grumman that we might have fuel tanks explode. Mm-hmm. Just a warning. Cool, man. Thanks for the thanks for the heads up on the last day, bro. <laughs> okay, so real quick, this is when the actual landing happens, because um, I've never, ever seen or read about it in detail specifically. So this was my first time, the first time I went through the book. It was really cool. It was at that point that Armstrong's voice rang back to Earth. Houston, Houston, uh, tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. Armstrong told Duke beforehand not to be surprised if the landing site was so named, but most in the room, including Kranz, had no inkling of what it might be called. Even if he was expecting Tranquility Base, the Capcom, who is a astronaut, momentarily fumbled his response in an excited rush of adrenaline. Roger, Tuan, Duke began, then began a brief second, then paused a brief second before continuing. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. We've got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Minutes later, Duke would remind Kranz of the landing site's call sign, Tranquility Base. Kranz replied, apparently ribbing him for his slip. Okay, that sounds like a good one, if you can say it. So <laughs> so the first communication yeah. from, yeah. we're on the moon, back home, they screw up the comms, uh-huh. and the flight director's making fun of the guy because he screws up the radio call. Yeah. I love it. Well, also, I mean, you have to love the fact that the first word ever spoken from the surface of the moon back to Earth was Houston. That's uh, How cool is that? I don't know, Rick Houston. How cool is that? <laughs> That is cool, man. Yeah. I mean, you could put that on a gravestone. I mean, that's oh, worth yeah. that's yeah. worth yeah. Uh, that's legit. So they just so now they're landed. Did they know in advance? And is it normal that the pilots, the astronauts, name where they land? 
No, that that was a that was a first time thing that I can recall. None of the other landing sites had uh, was designated or named by the crew. It was basically wherever they landed. It was Hadley Real. It was the Ocean of Storms, and and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, uh, Tranquility Base. I mean, we've never done this before, right? So let's just go ahead and name the place. And you know, as Neil Armstrong, that was his prerogative. That's cool, and they're pretty excited. Obviously, yeah. if you're the one that's supposed to talk to the astronauts, mm-hmm. uh, so Capcom said so this is an astronaut. So Duke is also an astronaut. He's so amped up, he gets excited. You know, I, listening to me on this this podcast, it, it's painfully obvious that you can get tongue tied. And you know, Charlie, in that moment, he did. I yeah. mean, consider how many people were listening to him yep. in that moment. I mean, you're talking about literally hundreds of millions of people around the world in a lot of areas that might not be so friendly to the United States, but they were still listening. And so, Roger Twent, Tranquility, I don't hold that against Charlie Duke. Oh, Nobody no, else no, no. I, think it's, I think it's a yeah, cool part yeah. of the story. Well, and then, I, think it's, I think it's a human element totally. to, to a very human story. Yes, and the fact that Gene Kranz can, can tease him a little bit right yeah. afterwards. I'm like, that's, yeah. a, that's a cool culture right there. So we're going to skip forward just a little bit. There's a little bit of celebration once they land. So There's a little bit of celebration in the viewing room. In mission control. So that's what I get to specifically. Yes. So yeah. could, this is where, you know, okay, we're still at, this is all uncharted territory. Right. So although they're excited, Gene Kranz recognized this, that, hey, the work is just starting. Right. So celebration has to wait. So Kranz did not have any time to react one way or the other because his attention was immediately focused on the post, on the first polling of his control team on whether Eagle could remain on the surface and if it could continue or not continue would be a no-go call. So right now, okay, they're landed. And it's, right. we need to assess if, can we stay or do we need to go? Right. And then also checking the systems to make sure they could go. Yeah. So we're not taking a break yet. No. I no, mean, I mean, their job, listen, Kennedy's mandate was to land a man on the moon, but also return him safely to the Earth. So their job was not done. They were not just going to leave Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon just because they landed. They still had a job to do, and it was a very serious job. And, and that, in a nutshell, is the job of mission control. Their, their first priority is mission safety. And so, I mean, I love Bob Carlton, and you can hear him on, the, on, the, on his loop back to his back room. And some of the guys in his back room, they were kind of celebrating. Oh, gosh, look at that. That's great. Da, da, da. And Bob said, keep your eye on the bird. Keep your eye on the bird. He had to be as intelligent as Bob Carlton was to hear his, his Alabama accent. You would have thought he was the biggest backwood hick on the face of the earth. But he told his guys, keep your eye on the ball. We're not out of the woods. We still have a job to do, so watch your data. So other he, we can celebrate later. Later we can celebrate yeah. later. So yeah. he, there are there are a group of leaders in the room that are tracking. Hey, we need to let's calm down. Let's focus. And it's cool you wrote about Kranz's reaction. 
Finally, Kranz had had enough and barked, Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. As he brought everyone else's emotions under control, Kranz was trying to do the very same thing for himself. He was getting choked up with emotion. It's sort of like your first landing in a high-performance jet aircraft, Kranz said. As soon as you touch down, you have that instant of exhilaration to say, I did it. You have to stay focused on the task because you still have the landing rollout. You got to lower the nose gear. You got to make sure you don't hit the barrier. To me, it was just a period of absolute instantaneous recognition that we just touched down and then turning very quickly around to get back on track. And that is what they did. But it takes a little bit of a turn. You know, they're their itinerary of things takes a little curveball here. And, and I really like, this is where I think the cool, the human element of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin comes out because they're supposed to take a nap and relax for eight <laughs> hours. You know, they're, they're told that's the plan. Is I don't land- know who came up with that timeline, but <laughs> it, it was not realistic. So how did the itinerary change? Well, they basically said, we're not going to take a nap. I mean, that that was impossible, and I I don't know why they came up with that plan, but they were too keyed up, and that was obviously very understandable. And so they actually moved the EVA, the spacewalk, the moonwalk, up by several hours and and forgot about the the nap and and went right out for a little stroll in the Sea of Tranquility. So they were uh, like, no, we're not going to take a nap. We're not going to sit here. Well, this is also cool, is that – when they did all their post-landing assessments, they pick up on something that raises a bit of a red flag. So during the post-landing venting of the fuel and oxidizer tanks, a small amount of leftover fuel froze in the heat exchanger, and that in turn caused the rising pressure in the line. It was like a pressure cooker, Carlton continued. If the propellant line had ruptured, would it have been that big a deal? The line was located in the guts of the descent engine, And the descent engine had already done its job. That much was true. But if the line burst and sprayed fuel into the warm engine bell, what then? 35 minutes after landing, Armstrong and Aldrin were informed of the line's increasing pressure. Both men later downplayed the risk, and it's not hard to imagine why. They had something else on their minds at that point. A moonwalk. So they're not really distracted by this possible fuel line that might just kill them on no. their way. Yeah, no in, big deal. In, in the grand scheme of things, that was a, a relatively minor issue. It played no part. Uh, it, there was no problem with that. So, yeah, they just watched that data and went for, went for a walk. And it's exactly what pilots would do. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got something really cool I could do. Or you're telling me something bad might happen that might kill me. It's like, look, I'm not worried about that. I'm going <laughs> to let me go walk on the moon. Well, and, and that was not Neil Armstrong's call. That, was, that call was going to be in mission control. So that the, I think that the people in mission control were as keyed up and looking as forward to that EVA as Neil and Buzz were. So the I don't, I'm not going to do it justice if I try to encapsulate what you wrote about when they actually exit the lunar module and start walking around the moon. So read the book. It's awesome. Go flight. I'm not kidding. You got to read this book. It's, it's freaking awesome. So, but I want to skip forward to a little bit of a curveball that nobody was expecting. So they're on the moon and they get a phone call. (laughs) You know, you want to talk about just a bad time. Yeah. This, this reminds me, this story we're going to talk here in a second reminds me of when 
you know, you're hanging out on base, you're doing your work, the squadron's maintaining jets, you're busy, and a four-star general decides to show up and just throw a grenade into your plan, and you're like, oh, man. And then they roll out the red carpet and this tap dance of presentation. But, so... Well, this one's so what, a four-star what general. So, I know. So, what, <laughs> Rick, what happens now? Um, without any kind of notice or expectation, the White House called. And Richard Nixon wanted to talk to Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And the Capcom, the poor Capcom, Bruce McCandless, basically had to put him off because they had things that they had to get done. And the first, basically the first time that they had a chance to take a breath and, and get maybe, you know, a split second between tasks, they put Richard Nixon on the line. And that was one of the most famous phone calls in human history because it was literally broadcast to the world. Now, that was a big moment for Nixon. It was obviously, you know, kind of cool for the astronauts on the lunar surface, but it was a part of the timeline that was not simulated. It, they had not planned for that. And so, you know, what, what, what did that cost the timeline for Richard Nixon to make his phone call? Sure. And without any heads up. Right. Like, come on, dude. <laughs> you know, you just a good idea factory from right field, just throwing a grenade in the plan. And I like how they put them off. Honestly, I was glad. I was like, good. Yeah. Bro, you're you're not part of this plan. Stay on the sidelines. We'll let you know when you got time. Um, cool, you're the president and all. And then I'll add this. This is interesting. The irony was simply too much to ignore in the coming years. Nixon made so much a fawning phone call to Armstrong and Aldrin only to kill the Apollo program not long afterward. Yeah. <sighs> I, I fully believe that if Nixon and politics had not killed the Apollo program, we would be on the surface of Mars right now. And I absolutely believe that's that. another, we're going to have that podcast. We got to do that one. Yeah. I'm going to call Elon Musk and see if he wants to participate. <laughs> I think the three of us could have a good chat. Maybe we could have a studio on the surface of Mars. You could do your podcast there. I could do my NASCAR Sign podcast up, there. Man. I'll have ready room coffee, donate like $40 <laughs> <laughs> you know, from our marketing budget. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. All right, so this is uh, – we're going to move forward a little bit. Again, not doing it justice, but the they've gotten to the moon. So this part of the mission has been a success. So, so far, so good. You know, they've done their moonwalks, collected rocks, done with their – you know, talk to the president, all this. Uh, so to the book, the first part of President Kennedy's directive had been accomplished with the landing and moonwalk, but the job was not finished. The second part – the most important part was to return the crew of Apollo 11 safely to Earth. So now it's, you know, they've had a string of good luck, string of successes. And now it's, this is crunch time, man. Because how about doing all this and then punting it away at the ninth inning? You know, that kind of thing. So I, th that was that was where, because I'm excited reading the book. I'm like, this is cool. I'm cheering and everything. And they're like, oh, yeah, they got to come home. Yeah, th th We're not even... This is the, the most dangerous part, arguably. We're going to fast forward a little bit to the... I'm just going to read basically the when they leave the moon and they're, they're heading back home. And then kind of the impact I'd like to talk about specifically of how this had on specific a couple people. But 
kind of globally, you know, reading about it, I was like, man, I can't even imagine if you're listening to this, the live play-by-play, considering the time, the 60s, and, you know, it's not far after, I mean, Vietnam's going on, it's not long after Korea, it's not that long after World War II, and some of the people who were around were even alive during World War I, you know, when this is happening, so... They've had a. Well, they've seen oh, some. There were veterans of World War One. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them. Yeah. So this is significant. All right. Okay. All right. I, I wrote down. Fingers crossed. It's launch home. Uh, Loden. Remind me who. Hal Loden. Hal Loden. Who was he again? Uh, he was basically the uh, the same position as Bob Carlton. And so he he was in charge of the lunar module during that phase of the flight. Okay, so he's in charge. So this is so he's on the radio loop and he's watching when they're going to take off. They're going to leave the moon and go back and connect with the command service module. Yes, and then go home. Right. All right. So despite his butterflies, Loden was seeing nothing concrete that might have caused him to alert Lunny. All he could do was keep whatever apprehension he had at bay and hope for the best. When you get down to zero, you can't stand up and say, Flight, I don't feel good. Don't do this, Loden continued. You've just got to understand that the best minds in the engineering world have put that machine together, and we've had the best pilots flying it. You've just got to go on faith that everything was going to work out right. So he's monitoring potential things to pop up, and at the end of the day, he just says go all his data looked good and so there was no reason to say hey we've got a problem so capcom so he's the astronaut communicating with the uh lunar module at the time ronald e ron right ron evans ron evans ron evans okay cool so i'm gonna read this little part real quick because this is cool capcom ronald e ron evans helped armstrong and aldrin through their final preparations and finally Aldrin could be heard counting down their final seconds on the moon. Nine, eight, seven, six, five. Abort stage, engine arm, ascent, proceed. Eagle had spent 21 hours, 36 minutes, and 20.9 seconds at Tranquility Base. That's cool. But they're not home yet. They're not home. Now it's like, <laughs> we're just leaving. <laughs> they're not home We're yet. not home. Gosh. Man, this is just... All right, so we're going to fast forward to this through, through this a little bit because they get a successful ascent from the moon, successful rendezvous with the command service module, and a successful RTB back to Earth. And this is where, like, the impact. And I wrote, uh, impact of the moon landing. And just to, you know, people are listening on radios, right? Because it's not broadcast on a television. So they've got their radio in the living room and they're listening to this, right? And just the, the communications, everything. So people have been keeping track of this. The entire mission, so they've been on the moon for 21 hours plus, but the mission itself has been days in the making. You know, one mission isn't, it's not two hours like the movie Apollo 13. It's It's days. So they've, this has been followed live by the world for f- four or five days yes. going on now? Well, since launch, which was five days before. Five days. So yeah. live for five days, president phone calls, landing on the moon. Now it's we're going home. 
millions of people were already beginning to come to grips with the enormity of what NASA had just accomplished. There were house parties, celebrations on town squares all over the world, and quiet vigils in bunkers in war-torn Vietnam. Ironically, it was the people closest to the situation who could not reflect on the flight of Apollo 11. Reflection had to wait until after the flight, or maybe even decades. Then and only then could anyone in mission control comprehend what had taken place that magical week in July 1969. So like you had mentioned, they're not celebrating. Mission control isn't celebrating. They're still got to keep their focus for how long does it take to get back home from the moon? Three days. Okay, so three days. Jeez. Man, it's freaking long. And they're doing shifts, right? Guys are going home, trying to sleep, and then come back. So there's multiple shifts happening. Mm -hmm. Man, I don't know how you go home and go to sleep. Yeah. Much much less reflect on what you had just accomplished. And the story that I think you're about to read, that you... It, it's one of my favorite in the book, and not just because it's about Ed Fittendale. I mean, he, and I'll just go ahead and tell a story. You don't have to read it. Uh, I have it memorized, basically. It, you know, that'd be better. It, it's actually kind of cool because Ed Fittendale, being the crusty, no-nonsense guy that he was, he got off console after the landing and after the EVA and everything. He goes to the local diner he picks up a newspaper uh, with you know man on the moon you know splashed in like 2000 point type on the cover or whatever and he sits down in the diner and there's these two grubby looking guys sitting at the counter and they're mechanics and they're greasy and they got grease under their fingernails they look kind of rough and you know I I hope I don't get choked up telling about it telling the story but one of the guys turned the to his buddy and said, I I landed on Normandy on D-Day, and I've never felt more like an American. I've never been prouder to be an American than I was yesterday. Imagine what that was like for Ed Fendale to hear that. And Ed Fendale, being Ed Fendale, he got very emotional. He got choked up, and he paid for his meal, and he left and went to his car and sat down and cried. How freaking cool is that? Now, you know, uh, you, you can talk about patriotism. You can talk about professionalism. But when, when a guy who landed on D-Day says that he'd never been prouder to be an American than when Apollo 11 landed on the moon, that's deep. That's powerful. And for it to be Ed Fendale, that just puts it over the top. Yeah, that... That part of the book, phenomenal. And I got choked up reading that part because the the crusty guy at the counter, so he talks about how he went from Normandy uh, all the way to Berlin. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got some stories. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. So to bring it all home with the Apollo 11 story, I thought this was just badass. The average age of the people who had just landed men on the moon was just 28 years and change. Just cool. Teamwork of a different sort at a different time where the technology that we're going to get into here in a little bit when it comes to the Apollo 13 issues, what they did, when they did it, and how they did it, and who these guys are, this is 
this is cool, man. This is cool. So, <laughs> what's your uh, when you think of the Apollo Eleven stuff? What when someone says Apollo Eleven, landing men on the moon? Is there any event in the whole mission itself that sticks out for you? Honestly, no, because it was a complete team effort, and to credit one story over another would would be to cheapen the the entire picture the the story to me and it's because i'm a writer and and i I take meaning and things like that and because i'm not an engineer i can't identify with the nuts and the bolts and the physics and the engineering and all that the story about ed at the at the breakfast counter and the d-day vet that's what brings it home to me it is the overall meaning of what they had accomplished the to have so many people in the same place at the same time working towards the same goal at a time when the united states was literally coming apart the seams because of vietnam and because of protests and because of assassinations i, I don't i'm not going to get political but it, it makes me wonder what we could accomplish today if everybody would just shut up. And I'm talking conservatives. I'm talking liberals. I'm talking Republicans. I'm talking Democrats. Just shut up and listen. I mean, social media has been very good to me. Uh, it has allowed me to build a community around my podcast. So used, quote unquote, correctly, social media is a very good thing. But it also gives voice to idiots. It can be used positively if you want. Yes. Or you could create some serious negativity. And and I'm talking. I don't. Talk, and listen, I'm talking about both sides of the fence. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Both. So just act like you've got some common sense. And there is no telling what this country could, what could accomplish. But everybody now has an agenda. A little bit of humility and listening wouldn't hurt? Yep. A little bit. A little <laughs> well, bit. It's, it's a line from the Andy Griffith Show. You've been talking, but you haven't been listening. And Andy Griffith Show... Yes. He's from not far from here, right? He's from about an hour north of here. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that until I went up there to get... Uh, what town is it? Mount Airy. Mount Airy, North Carolina. Yeah. yeah. Uh, nobody's perfect. I mean, you can fly jets and all that, but if you're not if you're not conversant in the Andy Griffith show... I got to work on it? You're not to be trusted. All right, man. I got to <laughs> I gotta work on my trust. Uh, and, and to tell you how eclectic I am, uh, yes, I've written books about NASA. I've written books about NASCAR. And I also teach a series of Bible studies based on the Andy Griffith show. Okay, so I'm going to have to do some Andy Griffith study <laughs> before you, Elon, and I get together yeah, for the That'll be the next for podcast. For the podcast. That'll be the next podcast. I'm putting it out into the universe. I'm manifesting this. <laughs> Rick, we're going to get together with Elon Musk and talk nerdy airplanes and NASA and stuff like that and just go to town. Have his people call my people. Done. Okay. Done. I'll have them. Uh, I know you're busy. We'll see if they can. <laughs> if you can fit them in, let me know. Yeah, Absolutely. So, well, that was Apollo 11, and you know that story's been told a lot of times, like you had mentioned. And but Apollo 12, 
and how it affects. Okay, we've we've been going over an hour. Oh, really? Uh, We're zooming. What's your timeline like? I, I they close at five, so and it's now three thirty six. Let's. What would you? Uh, gosh, there's these are, I knew this is going to happen because this and, is so and, cool. And Apollo twelve and Apollo thirteen. They deserve every bit as much. I agree. As Apollo Eleven, I totally agree. So you know, just take that into account. And and you know, I don't know that your listeners are going to want to hear three episodes with me. So I I have absolutely I could give a shit. <laughs> I, I, seriously, this is so cool to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I podcast. don't shortchanging this for yeah. some other reason. I don't give it. Okay. I mean, okay, the people who appreciate this stuff will be like. They will like it. And those that don't can listen to something else. Like, right. don't okay. give a shit. That can listen to the same vault podcast. Yeah. 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 Check out the NASCAR podcast. So, <laughs> all right, let's talk Apollo 12. This is kind of a, uh, you know, when you say Apollo, the ones people think of, it's usually Apollo 13 because of the movie or Apollo 11 because we landed men on the moon. But the Apollo 12, like you'd mentioned before, you don't talk about Apollo 13 without talking about Apollo 12. It's, it's probably, it's one of the whys and reasons behind it's, because how it became so successful. Successful meaning they survived, the astronauts. All right, this is from the book Go Flight, Chapter 8. Great job, young man. Some call it luck. Some called it preparation meeting opportunity. Some called it destiny. Some called it arguably the greatest call ever made in mission control with the success or failure of a mission hanging in the balance. The truth is that it was a combination of all those things, and it began on John Aaron's drive home from a difficult day at work a year or so earlier. It had been a long day. The mission control was not actually even controlling the test. Aaron, flight director Glenn Lunny, and maybe a handful of others were just listening in and evaluating whether or not the command service modules, instrumentation, and software were in working order. Astronauts, years later, Aaron could not remember which ones had been flipping switches in the space spacecraft all day and into the night to the point where local test operator astronauts had taken over. It was around midnight and Aaron was already exhausted when the capsules, the capsule systems experienced a complete brownout. So I wanted to read that to start because that, that is the what that we're going to talk about specifically brownout. So what is brownout? Basically, they had been monitoring a test and whatever happened in the spacecraft and the data that they got in mission control dropped out. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily offline, but the, the data just, the, the telemetry dropped out and that was the brownout. And so John Aaron being the, the, intensely curious person that he is, he had to figure out why that had happened. And so he got together with a contractor, I believe it was, and they kind of sussed this thing out and they determined that they had lost the the part of the spacecraft that converted the telemetry into usable data. You know, because, I, and again, I'm not an engineer, so I, I can't really explain the technical side of it, but they had lost data. And telemetry is kind of important. Yeah. They they had to have data in order to tell how much fuel, what was going on with the electrical platform. They had to have that kind of telemetry. 
And so he figured out what was going on, but more importantly, he figured out basically a solution for it. So it stuck with him. It talk, It says that yes. Aaron sees all this random stuff popping up on the screen he's never seen before. And he has the wherewithal because of you know who he was and his personality. He takes screenshots of all the stuff that was showing up on his monitor before he left home that night, left for home. So he's like, something's up. This is different. I don't recognize this. I got to figure it out. So he screenshots the data. And that turns out to be kind of important later on. I think the point to be made about Apollo 12 as opposed to Apollo 11 and 13 is 11 and 12, 11 and 13 were prime examples of team efforts, and Apollo 12 was a, a, just a stellar case of indi- individual excellence. So John Aaron, who, by the way, is 26 years old at the time, he's 26 years old. And he has the wherewithal to take screenshots of this kind of random data that's popping up this, that causes this brownout. So they lose all information. And like, hmm, what is this? I don't know what it is, but I'm going to remember it and save it for later for some reason. So let me make sure. There was a part I highlighted here just to... Okay, that was, that was the way John Aaron's brain worked. It was the random numbers on the screen that intrigued him. It was not good enough that the simulation was over. It was not even sufficient that his gut feeling on the battery had been absolutely correct. He had something else on his mind as he trudged to his car in the early morning quiet for the trip home. What caused the upset in the first place? That crazy random pattern in his readouts. So he's got like a spidey sense that's picking up something's not right here and saves it for later, which is... Which is a good thing. Yeah, and <laughs> I don't know how many good thing. I don't know how many people would, would be like, you know, I'm just going to save this for later. Yeah. Vice just after a long day, just going home, yeah. and saying work's over. I'm gonna, you know, detach, drop the pack, and go home and get some sleep. Instead, he's like, no, this something's weird here, and I need to save this for later. Well, you and I talked earlier about how Apollo 11 and Apollo 13 were complete and total team efforts. There was no one part of mission control that that took precedence over another. They all had to work, and they all had to work well in order for the mission to succeed. And I think in Apollo 12's case, in in the case of the launch of Apollo 12, it was a primary example, not not necessarily of team excellence, but individual excellence. And that, that laid right at John Aaron's footstep because he had been prepared. He had done the work. He had done the study. He had seen the need, and he had sussed that out and figured it out. And maybe not, and maybe not even had figured it out. He just knew that it was an issue, and so he, you know, he, he studied it. And 36 seconds after the, after the flight of Apollo 12 left the launch pad, that six hundred, that three hundred and sixty-three foot tall launch vehicle, which was essentially a bomb, loaded with millions of pounds of propellant, was struck by lightning not once but twice. That is, you know, the the probability of getting struck by lightning. But the context leading up to that, because that was a lightning and weather and thunderstorms, was something they had put into their decision matrix. They they'd considered it, and you specifically talk about it here. 
so going back to Aaron kind of filing away the information, and then when that information he filed away becomes useful, which he doesn't know if it'll ever happen. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know if I need this information, but he just knows it's something random that I'm going to keep. Aaron did not document the solution other than go over with other e-coms how the general test configuration had been screwed up. When it came to the odd way the SCE box reacted to the brownout, Aaron did not so much as jot down a note anywhere. He just filed the information away in the deepest recess of his mind, where it waited to be called upon at a moment's notice. That moment came at just past 10.22 a.m. in Houston on 14 November 1969, a little more than 36 seconds into the flight of Apollo 12. Mission rule, they actually had mission rules, ITAC 404 stated it clearly enough that a vehicle could not be launched when its flight path would carry it through a cumulonimbus or thunderstorm cloud formation. He's got his screenshots of the information, Mm -hmm. and then he remembers the scenario, and it's back in his mind. And he discussed it with a bunch of the other e-coms about what this was. So it's in his mind. So 36 seconds into the Apollo 12 launch, this is where it gets gnarly, man. Because getting struck by lightning once is crazy, but let alone twice. The instant retro officer Chuck Dietrich told Griffin that clocks on board the spacecraft and mission control were in in sync, At 36.5 seconds in, a burst of static crackled through the headsets in mission control. Atmospheric conditions were just right, and lightning sparked by the electrical discharges of the Saturn V and its long contrail back to the ground hammered the vehicle. 15 and a half seconds later, it happened again. And this is where all hell breaks loose. And the thing about it is, as you mentioned, John Aaron did not have that solution jotted down anywhere. He didn't have it on a checklist other than in the back of his mind. And so when that happened and Pete Conrad started calling down all these lights that were going, all these caution and warning lights that were going off in the spacecraft, and nobody had ever heard that many caution lights going off at one time, not even in a simulation. This is so things are bananas right now. Yes, things are upside down in mission control. <laughs> so, so the- <laughs> and and so when Conrad start when the mission commander Pete Conrad starts calling down all these lights, just like that, John Aaron's mind starts working, and within I think I, I couldn't tell you exactly, but within maybe thirty seconds, maybe somewhere in there, maybe less than that he had what he thought was the solution. Signal condition equipment to auxiliary. And basically what the signal conditioning equipment box did, it converted that telemetry into raw data for their screens. So signal conditioning, that's the SCE. SCE to aux. To auxiliary. Okay. Okay. Flight director Jerry Griffin had never heard of the (laughs) SCE box. The capsule communicator jerry carr had never heard of the sce box or flip or or switch and so john aaron was the only person in mission control who knew what that meant and so he called it up to jerry griffin jerry griffin passed it along to jerry carr jerry carr 
passed it along to the crew. And Pete Conrad, the mission commander, had no idea. And that's we're going to break that down. Yes. And, but so this, this is a long thirty seconds. Yeah, there's a lot going on in oh, that thirty yeah. seconds. And yeah, all the lights and tones in the spacecraft are going off. So every light and tone is so they're they're, they're having you know it's like a fireworks display of lights and warnings right. and tones in the space shuttle. They don't even know what to do. Yeah, which I thought was hilarious because you'd mentioned the personalities on the Apollo twelve mission versus the Apollo 11 mission, the guys in the aircraft are laughing at like, what, did, what do we even do here? There's too I much. I don't know Maybe that not they laughing, laughing yet. At, they laughed about it they, later. They eventually <laughs> laughed. I, but let's talk about that 30 seconds. Yeah. You know, when, after the second lightning strike, you had mentioned Pete Conrad. At that moment, Conrad told the room what was painfully clear to everyone. Okay, we just lost the platform, gang. I don't know what happened here. We had everything in the world drop out. So they are clueless what the issue is. But I do like how um, Carr, who is Carr? Jerry Carr. Jerry Carr. So the he's, capsule communicator. So he knows that, all right, something's wrong. We don't know what it is. But he also is aware that you still got to keep cool. You still got to keep things together. So Jerry Carr says, one of the watchwords was, keep your trap shut until somebody figures out what the situation is, said Carr who likened the scene in the room to pandemonium in those first few seconds. You don't send anything up there unless the flight director tells you. I guess the important thing was to keep your trap shut, listen, and try and understand. If you can help with the problem on the mission control loop, you can do that. But you've got no business calling information up to the crew without clearance from the flight director. So he's, he's aware that just throwing good ideas up there is, is not going to be productive. Well, as you were talking earlier about the forward air controller, it was not Jerry Carr's job to come up with a solution. It was his job to pass along the solution. So for him to get on the flight loop to the to the spacecraft and say, why don't you try this? That would have been absolutely the wrong thing to do because he didn't have the data in front of him. He hadn't had the training that John Aaron had. So right now it's Essentially, they're just listening to what they're getting from the spacecraft, right. trying to collect whatever they have to offer a constructive solution, which right now they don't have anything. Yes. They're just, there's all these lights going off and they've never seen it before. So this is where... I mean, uh, this is the ultimate case of the hot seat for John Aaron. This is in his lap. Nobody else's. It's in his lap. Because he is what? He is in charge of the environmental uh, innards of the spacecraft. Uh, he he's in charge of basically everything except propulsion, which was the GNC's area of expertise. Got it. So I like how so Conrad is seeing all the warnings and cautions go off, well, and, all three and he starts to read. And yeah. this is I kind of chuckled. So Conrad commenced to reading off the longest litany of launch anomalies anybody in mission control had ever heard. I got three fuel cell lights. I got an AC bus light, a fuel cell disconnect, AC bus 1 overload, AC bus 2 overload, main bus A out, main bus B out, and all these, so they're saying these, these are all the problems that are going on, so I'm like laughing, like, dude, yeah. this yeah. is a total shit show. So um, I've got that, I've got that audio, if you'd like to stick that in there instead of that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, would, I would love to, to throw that in there. Yeah. This is something I learned as well. They have, are right, talking about the simulations prior. Because I didn't know that ejecting, like aborting the mission at this point, and for I think it was the lunar module, 
just they would parachute. They would disconnect the lunar module once they the command and service module. the command and service module. Yes. But they would basically abort the mission, detach from the command and service module, and just parachute to Earth. Right. Well, there was a there was an escape tower, uh, which was the 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 part up top, like the tower above the 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 spacecraft. Yes, that would have been uh, that would have been uh, activated, and it would have taken the the command module, not the command and service module. It would have just taken the command module away from the rest of the launch vehicle. So I didn't. I had no idea that was even an option yeah. until there was no ejection. I mean, <laughs> the, the pilots are staying in the in the yes. craft, but yeah. they can. The command module will detach yes. and then parachute down. Yes, but that had never been done before, or had it? Not in no, not with humans on board. Got it. So that that was gnarly to me. So you talked about the simulations before, but this real scenario, the simulations uh, he had been through were always tough. And this is Jerry Griffin talking. The simulations he had been through were always tough, but even those did not seem this bad. I thought, good God, this can't be. Griffin said. My next thought was, if we have to abort, let's get some more altitude and give us more time for the chutes to work. An abort is never a good thing. At best, it's pretty dynamic. At worst, it can be catastrophic. So they're considering aborting at this point. All the deedle deedles and warnings and cautions going off, they're considering detaching the command module from the rest of the craft and making sure we're high enough to the parachutes work and they land somewhere. And I think uh, something that's very, very important to consider is that Jerry Griffin was the flight director for that launch. It was the first flight he had ever worked in the launch phase. It was the first launch he had ever worked. And so... Okay. Tough tough first day at the office. Yeah. Okay. Well, it wasn't the first day at the office, but it was the first time he had actually worked that phase in real time. He'd done, again, he'd done hundreds of, of simulations. All right. So now getting back to John Aaron, this is when his brain starts doing its thing, where it starts kind of like, hmm, digging into the archives. The pattern Aaron was seeing on his two monitors was familiar. The numbers almost to two decimal places looked the same. But when and where had he seen them before? Cy Liebergott, who was Cy? He was another ECOM. Okay, another ECOM. So Cy Liebergott had been on the ECOM console leading up to the launch, and after sticking around following his shift, he remembered Aaron staring intently at his screen, not saying a word. As Griffin called out to him, to Aaron, a thought struck Aaron like a ton of bricks. And we're going to get to that thought here in a minute. But he's... The, the flags are going off in his brain. Like, I've seen this before. How long, what was the time from when he had seen this kind of anomaly happen in the simulator to when this is happening real time? Now? About a year. A year. A year. Jeez, dude. And again, it's not written down anywhere oh, man. other than in the file cabinet of his mind. I forget what happened yesterday, let, al <laughs> let alone a year later. Yeah. Okay. There's a part here that, Without reading the entire book, I'm trying to not read the whole book. <laughs> oh, jeez. So Aaron's recognizing this stuff happen, and he's... Actually, well, let's, just, let's get into this part right here. Griffin calls out to Aaron, How's it going, Ecom? How's it looking? Aaron replied, but it wasn't to Griffin. He called back to James, 
James, James Kelly, his electrical power systems controller in the vehicle systems SSR. Is that the SCE? His friend sounded unsure. Well, I don't know, John. Uh, it sure looks like it. It's the first time it's been mentioned. Then this is when Aaron and Kelly, they have their, I, I don't want to call it an epiphany, but I think the light bulb goes off. So right up to this point, Aaron is, something is not making sense, but he's seen it before, but then I think it clicks. So Jim Kelly had been on monitoring, the, had been in on the same monitoring test with Aaron the year before when they had seen that brownout, and he called the 40-some odd hour grind, this was the simulator, the stupidest thing we ever did. <laughs> But let me tell you what that stupid thing did. That was where they had both seen the brownout, and he had known about the SCE fix as well. He just did not come back to it as quickly as Aaron. So the light bulb goes off. They, they remember, both of them, a year prior, mm-hmm. the SCE fix, and then take it away from there. So John asked Jim if that's the SCE and Jim comes back with the uh, with the statement. Yeah, I, I think so. And as soon as Jim Kelly said, "I think so," John gets on the flight loop to flight director Jerry Griffin and says, "Flight try SCE to Ox." There was no there was no fuzz on that statement. There it, it was. It, he said, "Let's consider trying it." He said do it. And again, Jerry Griffin had no idea what that switch was. But in a in a sign of trust in his team, he trusted John Aaron and his excellence and passed that along immediately to Jerry Carr who in turn passed it up to the crew and Pete Conrad had again had never heard of that. He goes, he's in the, he's in he's he's the spacecraft commander. He's So he's yeah. airborne. Yeah. Pete Conrad. Yeah. Yeah, and they tell him, "Hey, man, hit this switch." Yeah, and he's never heard of it. And he actually goes on the flight director on the on the air to ground loop. He goes NCE to auxiliary. What the hell is that? And Alan Bean, the crew member who was on the side of the spacecraft closest to that switch, and it was down probably down about lap level uh, on his right side. He knew where the switch was, and he flipped it, and almost instantaneously, they got their data back. Their their trajectory was fine, and Jerry Griffin could see the plot board up at the front of the room, and he could see that they weren't tumbling out of control. And so he was content to ride it out just a little bit longer to make sure that the spacecraft was you know, flying in the direction that it needed to fly, but that SCE to auxiliary call brought back the data that that in turn in, you know let John Aaron and the rest of Mission Control know what they needed to do from there. Got it. So that the total time and you wrote about it here was fifty one seconds yeah. after the first right. lightning strike. So this is the longest fifty one seconds in NASA currently. You know, and I want to break down a little bit of the the personalities involved, even the guys in the. You know, Pete Conrad and the guys in the actual aircraft. So 51 seconds after the strike, Aaron gave Griffin an answer, and this is where he gives him that call. There was no uncertainty in his voice as he gave his recommendation, although it might have spilled out of his mouth a bit faster than his Oklahoma drawl might normally have allowed. Flight, ECOM. Try SCE to AUX. 
Aaron was sure the first part of the problem was about to be solved. When I made the call, I was 100% confident that would fix the problem that I was trying to fix first, and that was to get some valid data. I was getting all these nonsensical readouts on my tube, and the crew was talking about all the lights that they were on in the aircraft and all the alarms going off. I was staring at data I knew wasn't valid. The flight director had never heard of the switch before. This is this cracks me up. And did not as much have a clue as to where it was located. So the flight director says to Aaron, say again, SCE to AUX? Yeah. AUX. Jerry Griffin repeated the request, almost as to himself, mulling it over for a split second or two, trying to figure out where the switch was and what it might do to help. SCE to AUX. Auxiliary flight. That was enough for Griffin. And he passed Aaron's call along to the Jerry Carr? Mm-hmm. Jerry Carr to relay to the crew. It was just a switch we never fiddled with, said Griffin. I had never worked with John. For, I had worked with John for a long time. I worked side by side with him in Gemini. John had a way of saying and doing things that when he said to do so, and so you took it to the bank. Achieving that kind of faith in his abilities on the part of the flight director was a trait that Aaron had worked on since joining NASA. Carr likened it to the implicit trust Marines had in each other while in the field. Every flight director yearns to have that trust in all the flight controllers because it's needed in the heat of battle. I thought that was really cool, like a leadership plug there. There's a lot of, everyone trusts John Aaron. He's, he's 26 years old, and the flight director, if John Aaron says something, they trust him implicitly. Yes. Very cool. And I, I do want to say this about the crew uh, on board the spacecraft. They're, that the the launch of Apollo twelve and the lightning strike is is a story that those guys told for the rest of their lives. They, uh, unfortunately, that entire crew now is is deceased. Uh, but I, I did get I did have the very good fortune to get to know Dick Gordon, the command module pilot, and Alan Bean, the command mo- uh, the lunar module pilot who walked on the moon. I, I had the very good fortune of getting to know them. And there was a myth, as they told the, that story over and over again over the years, that Alan Bean, the lunar module pilot, was the only one on board the spacecraft who knew where that switch was. And he was the lunar module pilot. Dick Gordon was the command module pilot who had helped design the instrument panel of the command module. So... Dick Gordon knew where that switch was. He just couldn't get to it because he was strapped in and Alan Bean was closer. So he couldn't reach the switch. Dick Conrad could not. Alan Bean could because it was literally within, you know, just arms arms reach. So, yeah, that, that's a little bit of a, of, of a war story, a, a, a sailor story between those three. They were all Navy astronauts. Nice. And, a little competition, yeah, things like a little that. Yeah, competition, and so yeah, Dick Gordon, he knew where it was. He just couldn't reach it. That's that's cool. So you had, so now that's, uh, and I want to read the part where things start working again, real quick. So, Alan Bean, he's the only one that can reach the switch. So he turns over and flips the SCE switch to AUX. So to the book, the fix worked. And good data instantly flashed up on the monitors in mission control. Before Carr finished repeating the names of the switch to Conrad, Kelly came up on loop A to Aaron and uttered some of the most beautiful words 
either of them had probably ever heard in Mission Control. Okay, we got it back, Ecom. Looks good. So that's that's when John Aaron and Jim Kelly entered history. Entered history. Yeah. So they're this the connection to what happened a year ago and everything that's gone on the past fifty one seconds, mm-hmm. two lightning strikes, deedle deedles left and right. The pilot's like, what do we do? Because everything's going off up here. And it all I mean, I can't even imagine how long that fifty one seconds took. But for, from the time John Aaron sees the stuff pop up on his screen, and he recognizes it, but he doesn't remember when, but it was a year ago, same with Jim Kelly, now they get the, the thumbs up. Right. And I, I think it's very, very important to understand how excellent that was. That, again, that, that was the best example of individual excellence in NASA history to this day, in my opinion, because literally the world was in John Aaron's lap. It rested on him. It was his call to make. Nobody else knew what to do, and John Aaron came up with it in in, in intense heat of battle. I mean, it, it was. I mean, there are no more dynamic. There's no more dynamic a phase of a flight than launch, and failed to him to make that call. And as a result of that as a result of that, he worked every launch of the Apollo program thereafter. And there were, let's see, 13, 14, 15, 16, 7, five more flights. And and every ecom in the place wanted the dynamic phases of the flight because that that was that was where the action was. That's the highest pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Well that was that was John Aaron's ballgame. That was John Aaron's that 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 was where John Aaron lived, and, and you know he lived for that moment. And did they build those teams specifically for those parts of flight? So launch. So the the, the dynamic phases were what specifically? The dyna- the most dynamic phases would have been obviously launch, and then the lunar landing, and then probably reentry. Although there wasn't a whole lot that they could do on reentry, especially with a blackout. Uh, but on the on the coast to and from the moon, I mean, it's basically just monitoring. It's basically just sitting and watching a monitor. Got it. And making sure you know everything's working. It fell in his lap, and he he did it. And what's kind of cool about that flight is from the moment that they got that data back, the the rest of the flight was as nominal as any flight NASA had before then or since. I mean, the rest of that flight went perfectly. Now, there was a concern that the lightning strike might have somehow triggered the the parachutes. That was something I've got highlighted here was the – well, they had a decision to either continue or yeah. unknowing. And, and, and here's, here's – what's the best way to put this? Here is where NASA this, – this is where NASA was at that time. And this is how mission control and 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 the astronaut car and the astronaut crew worked at that time. The 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 parachutes for landing for splashdown might have been somehow triggered, and so they might the you know in all likelihood they might very well have been useless. And this this was the this was the reasoning for continuing with the flight. Whether they come home now, 
immediately without going to the moon or whether or, or if they go on to the moon, they land and they do their exploration and then come home, they're going to be just as dead in a week as they will be now. So let's go on to the moon and do what we do and then come home and worry about the... Yeah, we'll worry about them might dying then, the, maybe the, dying. The parachutes deploying later. Yeah. So leading up to that, because that part we'll talk about a little bit in just a minute, but you had mentioned the the personality differences between Apollo 11 and Apollo 12, where, you know, Buzz Aldrin, um, Neil Armstrong, and Roger Collins for Apollo 11? Oh, uh, uh, Michael Collins. Michael Collins, correct. Michael Collins. Michael, so Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins, they didn't party together. They didn't go to the bar together. They were work colleagues, yeah. I mean, they, professionals. They they were... They were they had a professional relationship. Professional relationship, okay, and also that they weren't the Mavericks. They weren't the guys who were gonna run out of fuel and land on the moon like I would totally do. Yeah. And and honestly, there was a little bit of friction uh, between Neil and Buzz because Buzz actually made the case, and his dad, who had been a, an Air Force general, uh, had actually made the case for Buzz to go out first ah. and, and walk on the moon first. And and that's not necessarily something that Neil hung his hat on, but, uh, you know, you obviously recognize the significance of that. But also for, for Buzz to go to management, I think Neil kind of thought that that was going outside the chain of command and, and that kind of thing. And with his dad getting involved, uh, you know, that – it, it, oh dear. Okay, I'll fix that. Okay. Did, did it break? I. Oh, please don't let it hit broken. It did not. Okay. All right. Cool. Just, Who's just. That? Do what? Who's that? That's Dick Gordon. Oh, okay, so we got to talk about this real quick because this is kind of <laughs> random. All right, yeah. so we're in Rick's office. He's got a bunch of stuff all over the walls, and <laughs> and the picture of Dick Gordon, who we were literally talking about, falls off the wall. Holy cow! And it's signed, so we got a picture. A madness in the, like, yeah. this has got to go in there. This is cool. Yeah. Uh, and it's not broken, by the way. It didn't break. So a picture of Dick Gordon in his spacesuit. Yeah. That's gnarly. Yeah. Good timing right there. Yeah. If anything's going to fall yeah. off the wall. So I'm going to set it right here. All right. Okay. And, and that's that's just Dick's sense of humor. He had to make his presence known. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall that, off the that's wall. His, that's his sense of humor. <laughs> so there was a little bit of, uh, so th- that was the, you know, the Apollo 11 crew. So now, there's a little part I want to read about because the Apollo 12 crew, totally different. 180 degrees. 180 degrees. And I want, I think this is highlighted, and we'll talk about the personalities in just a second. But so right now, all the lights have gone crazy and everything, but they've got the SE to aux, so they're getting good data, both in the aircraft and in mission control. Now they start communicating up to the aircraft, hey, what's up? What are we doing? And just the reaction of Conrad, Pete Conrad. Yeah. So Pete Conrad's reaction, so he's one of the astronauts. So down on the Capcom console, Carr had a suggestion of his own. Down on the Capcom console, Carr had a suggestion of his own. You want to tell them how their initial unit or inertial unit is doing? That might make him feel better. Yeah, tell him he's right on the trajectory. No problem there. So Carr passed it along uh, to the astronauts in a light t- with a light tone in his voice. Apollo 12, Houston, you're right smack dab on the trajectory. Your initial, your inertial units doing a beautiful job. If Conrad was concerned about anything at that point, 
It was not possible to tell over the air to ground loop. He came back to car with almost an all out giggle in his voice. Okay, we're all chuckling up here over the lights. We all said there were so many we didn't know what to do and we couldn't read them. So the pilots are, I mean, there's so much going on in the aircraft. They're like, what are we even doing? How do we fix yeah. this? So they're laughing about yeah, it. Yeah. And like you had mentioned, that kind of falls, it, it's in uh, incongruence with, the, sounds like the personalities of the Apollo 12 guys. So what were those guys like? Pete Conrad and Dick Gordon had actually uh, flown together uh, in the Navy. Uh, so they had a very deep relationship already. Alan Bean was a also a naval adi- aviator, uh, but uh, he, I really liked Alan because I, I saw a lot of myself in him. Not that I'm an astronaut, obviously, but he called himself an extreme introvert, and and he said that you know while he would go out to the parties with Dick and 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 Al, or with Dick and and Pete. Uh, he would, and, and he could hold his own in those parties, but he would have to go back to the room, the hotel room afterwards and decompress. Uh, it, but he was, because, it, although he was a, a, an introvert and he said he was an extreme introvert, he, he did, he wasn't standoffish. He took part in what Pete and Dick were doing, but he, and he had a good time just like they did, but then he had to decompress his personality was accepted by the other two crewmen and so they were they were honestly the most cohesive i don't want to say the most cohesive because every every crew was cohesive and they did their jobs well but they were the closest personally very personal they were all very good friends and there was a lot of humor yes and it sounds like i mean there's a lot of laughter and banter right. going on yeah. during the moonwalks right. between these guys and Mission Control. Yeah. And it, it almost seemed that the Mission Control guys were like, hey, we need to kind of keep these guys in line because they're No, I don't think I don't think I don't think it was a case of that because although they were very, you know, close and tight knit, they were still professional. Sure. It, it wasn't Animal House goes to the moon. Okay. By any stretch of the imagination. And, and so there there was that uh, but one kind of funny note, the, the backup crew to Apollo 12, which would eventually land on the moon on, a, on Apollo 15, the, the mission commander and the uh, lunar module pilot who walked on the moon, they got hold of the checklist that Al, they got hold of the checklist that Pete and Al wore on the moon on their, on their EVA suits. And they actually put Playboy pinups. Nice. In their in their nice. in their checklist, <laughs> I love it. And so, I love you know, it. And, and obviously, they can't say that on the on the air to ground loop. Sure, but you know, it, it was it was kind of funny, and that was the kind of crew that they were. They appreciated that kind of humor, and they lived off of it, and they fed off of it. And where Apollo Eleven was so business like, Apollo Twelve showed what a crew that was very tight knit could do, and both worked. Both accomplished every goal that they had, mission objective that they had. It was just two completely different ways of of doing business. I was thinking as I'm, you know, reading this and thinking about the cruise, I'm like, I, I would love to have beers with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and those guys, but I'm like, I'd probably have a little more fun hanging out with the guys from Apollo 12. Honestly, I, I think Neil Armstrong would, you know, he would have the beer with you. 
but unless you were a close friend, mm-hmm. he would be very technical and he would be very he, he would be very much the engineer. Got it. And he actually called himself a, a nerd with a pocket protector. And, and, you know, yeah, it would have been nice to have dinner with Neil Armstrong, but you you would have gone well into the night with Pete Conrad gotcha. and Pete Gordon. So were, were they fighter pilots in the Navy? Oh, yeah. Oh, because, you know, yes, if, if they've got a Playboy pinup on their – Oh, yeah. Space suit. But these guys got to be fighter pilots. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Little fighter pilot plug. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, this all connects to you had written about the question of the day. This was the question for a very long time that connects all of this together. What if John Aaron had not made the SEE to AUX call when and where he did? And the amount of scenarios that unfold if he doesn't do that. According to Jerry Griffin, he was very close to calling an abort, but because the plot boards at the front of the room, because they showed that the spacecraft, the launch vehicle was headed in the right direction, the altitude was good, the trajectory was good, he would have let that flight go on long enough to where they more than likely could have figured out a solution, okay? So to to say that the SCE to auxiliary call saved the lives of the crew, I don't think that that's quite accurate. Did it save the the flight of Apollo 12? I think that's closer to the mark. The excellence in that call was in its immediacy. I mean, they could they could have gotten to orbit and then once they were in orbit, then the team could have more than likely figured out a solution. But that would have been hours rather than seconds. The SCE call did not save the lives of the crew. It saved the mission sooner than had he not made it. Let's put it that way. Got it. And that decisiveness, Mm -hmm. you know, as I think about how long that evolution, that entire evolution, 51 seconds, it's not that long. I could never, ever work in mission control because I can come up with a solution, but I would have been, the, I, I'm the type of person who would come up with a solution a week later. You know, after I've had a chance to study about it and think about it and ponder it and ask everybody else what they think, <laughs> you know, to get some research done. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The the excellence and, and the you know the prime the one of the prime qualities of a of a flight controller in mission control was the ability to work under pressure, immediately work under pressure. And I don't ha- I I personally don't have that ability. I couldn't fly a jet fighter like you did uh, because I, I you know I I have to have time to make decisions. I don't have the ability to make that in the moment decision and at 26 years old at 26 and we're gonna we're gonna hear john aaron's name again four years out of college yeah no way (laughs) jeez like 26 years old i'm like what was i doing i'm like yeah nothing productive for the most part i'd like to finish the last part of this apollo 12 chapter and real quick so they had this this is a funny story i like about the nasa mentality at the time so right now they are 
this is two weeks prior to launch. So backing up two weeks prior to the launch of Apollo 12, the plan is to meet up with a surveyor or a rover. What was on? What was on? Surveyor three. Yes, it, it was basically a a stationary robot that had not a robot. It, it was basically just a a a lander that landed on the moon. Okay, uh, and was there basically so they could come take a part of it off and take it back to Earth. Okay, so Surveyor 3 is this robot that's already on the moon. Right. And they are told two weeks prior to launch that they need to essentially get a tool <laughs> to go up, and when they land, they're going to yeah, they're gonna detach this part of the, the Surveyor 3 right. and bring it back. Right. But in order to take a tool to outer space, it has to go through a big process of getting it tested designed, and designed. Had, yes, absolutely. It was... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and, uh, millions of dollars would have went into, in, in every other case, millions of dollars would have went into the the design and and construction of this tool, and NASA management just told the astronauts or told the 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 people that was under that were under his charge, told them to go down to Sears and buy a pair of tin snips. And and sand the ID number from Craftsman off of it, so it couldn't be identified. It couldn't be used for uh, uh, any advertising purposes. Stamp it as flight rated and stick it on the spacecraft. I love that. I love the simplicity of yes. the rule book says we got to design this yeah, thing yeah, and test yeah. it. And we're going to spend millions of dollars, and it's going to take a month. But we got to launch in two weeks. Yeah. And the guy running the show was I've got his name here. Reed. Who's uh, Yes, Dave Reed. Dave Reed. Okay, so Dave Reed. I'm going to read this part because this cracked me up. And I wish, gosh, this is Leadership 101. What happened next was truly amazing. Or, I'm sorry, correction. What happened next truly amazed Reed. So the call was made by Lowe. George Lowe. George Lowe. So what happened uh, next was truly truly amazed Reed. The decision by George Lowe. If the proposed procurement process for these, this tool seemed to be fast and just as just a month long lowe's was even quicker george lowe's idea was even quicker he had the doors closed to the meeting room before giving that same bright young energetic engineer his marching orders rick i want you to go down to sears and get two bolt cutters (laughs) bring them back sand off the sears label and stamp them flight qualified yeah what's the next item on the agenda he says and then they move on love it i love it like just we're not no we're not doing this ridiculous process mm-hmm. for some tin snips or bolt cutters. Go to Sears. Common sense applies. Love it. And and for somebody like John Aaron, the the way to tie this up, I think, would be, you know, John Aaron in that moment had had proved himself. And we talked last time about the significance of Chris Kraft, who was the head of Mission Control. He was basically the creator of Mission Control. He was the Godfather. And after that shift was over and after everything had happened, Chris Kraft came down to John Aaron's console and patted him on the back and said, good job, young man. And that was like having the hand of God placed upon you. He was the godfather. Yes. Chris Kraft. And and in that moment, that was John Aaron's payoff. I mean, what the most the the best review I've ever received for any project that I've ever had in my career. When I wrote this book, Go Flight, somebody in Houston who whose dad had worked in the space program sent a copy of my book 
to Chris Kraft for him to sign. And he sent back a, a note that said, this book is marvelous, and it's full of tales of just extraordinary patriotism and excellence. And for Chris Kraft to say that about something that I had produced, that was, I'm telling you, that was the best review I've ever had. And I have offered to buy that note from the person who received it. I've offered $1,000 for it, and they will not part for it, part with it. That's very cool. Yeah. That's a, that's a good way to tie it into what will be the next episode we're going to do together because <laughs> you and I talk forever. Yeah. And we're going to change it up here, folks, for any listeners. is the uh, 11 and 12. This episode will conclude here shortly, but we're going to come back and talk specifics of Apollo 13 and how Apollo 12 and a lot of the same names that we talked about here today play major roles in what happens with Apollo 13 and what what eventually leads to and drives the, at the end of the day, a successful conclusion to Apollo 13. So, Yankee Clipper, which was the lunar module. That right? was the command module. Command module. Yankee Clipper, the command module, splashed down into the rough Pacific Ocean just four and a half miles from the recovery ship USS Hornet. The landing was so hard at some 15 Gs and not only knocked out, knocked part of the heat shield loose, but also freed a camera from its mount in the cockpit that then whacked Bean, Alan Bean, just above his right eye. It was a hard landing, to be sure, but not nearly as hard as it would have been without parachutes. They had not been, da- that parachutes had not been damaged in the lightning strike after all, and they worked flawlessly. While one disaster had been averted, Mission Control had not seen anything yet. And that is the conclusion of the Apollo, Apollo's 11 and 12 story and the lead-in to the next episode, Apollo 13. And just a heads up, we've talked about Giant Aaron quite a bit. This book, Go Flight, The Unsung Heroes of Mission Control 1965 to 1992 by Rick Houston and Milton Heflin is phenomenal. And John Aaron does the foreword to this book. And you're going to hear his name quite a bit in the next episode with Rick here when we talk Apollo 13. So, Rick, again, thank you, man. This is, you know, I know this is always, you know, hey, let's plan for an hour. No chance. It's going to go three (laughs) hours. But these are phenomenal chats. Thank you for taking the time to make this happen. And, you know, the Ready Room podcast will try to pull lessons learned, you know, leadership. There's tons in this book that apply in everyday life that are so cool. Decisiveness, being calm, leadership, setting the example, studying, doing your homework. I mean, there's a million different things that apply to anybody in any facet of life. From Apollo 11, you had mentioned, you know, kind of the takeaway, but for Apollo 12, is there a learning point you think if you were going to, let's say, educate a classroom of high school kids and they read this book and specifically just the chapter on Apollo 12, what would you want them to remember? At some point, sometime, a very important decision or responsibility is going to be is going to come down to you, and you're not going to have a whole lot of help in making that decision. So it's your responsibility to be prepared as much as possible, as much as humanly possible, and that's what John Aaron did. 
he was prepared and in the moment of when he when people needed him the most he excelled and he made that call and saved the flight of Apollo 12 sooner than it would otherwise have been saved that is a strong finish Okay, I like it. We've been yapping for a while. So, folks, thanks again for listening. This is Mr. Rick Houston and Susan. We are out of here, folks. See ya. Say again, Houston. Uh, Roger, we'd like to get both of you in the field of view of the camera for a minute. Roger, we'd like to get both of you in the field of view of the camera for a minute. Neil and Buzz, uh, the President of the United States is in his office now and would like to say a few words to you. Over. Honor. Uh, go ahead, Mr. President. This is Houston out. Hello, Neil and Buzz. I'm talking to you by telephone from the Oval Room at the White House. And this certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made. I just can't tell you how proud we all are of what you For every American, this has to be the proudest day of our lives. And for people all over the world, I am sure they too join with the in recognizing what an immense feat this is. Because of what you have done, the heavens have become a part of man's world. And as you talk to us from the sea of tranquility, it inspires us to redouble our efforts to bring peace and tranquility to earth. For one priceless moment, in the whole history of man, all the people on this earth are truly one. One in their pride in what you have done. And one in our prayers that you will return safely to earth. Thank you, Mr. President. It's a great honor and privilege for us to be here representing not only the United States, but and of peace of all nations, and with interest and a curiosity, and, and with a vision for the future. Uh, honor for us to be able to participate here today. And thank you very much, and I look forward, all of us look forward to seeing you on the Hornet on Thursday. Look forward to that very much, sir.